This is AV Week, September 30th, 2011. This one goes to 11. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly roundup of news and commentary. I'm your host, Tim Albright. With us this week, uh, from World Stage, he's the engineering coordinator. His name is George Tucker. Hello, George. Hello, everybody. Also with us is Dawn Mead. She is known as AV Dawn. She's a blogger and consultant. Good afternoon, Dawn. Hi, everyone. And we have a newbie. His name is Kevin Iselli. He is the senior curriculum developer from Crestron. At least that's what his, his business card says. How are you, Mr. It's Kevin? It's a lie. It's, it's a, a lie. The cake is a lie. So. <laughs> there is no spoon. There is, there is no spoon. All right. Um, it's already begun. Uh, first thing on the board is from Rave Publications. Um, this has come out a couple different times. It's uh, a projector market uh, forecast. This is from Pacific Media Associates. They're saying that they're expecting a 22% growth in projector uh, sales uh, over 2010 for this year. By 2015, they're saying, hey, we should sell 39.4 million units. Yay, go us. Uh, does anybody else not believe this, or am, am I alone out here when, when I think that these guys are, are full of hot air? Don. Well, I got to say, I do and I don't believe this. I do believe it in the, the cute little portable ones that fit in my purse and, you know, you want to try to steal from Infocom because they're all tiny and cute. I think those are definitely going to be growing. I think every Road Warrior is going to have like three projectors in their in their briefcase. You know, I mean, <laughs> they've gotten so inexpensive. They've gotten so commoditized. I think there will be growth in that end. But as AV integrators and just even as AV wholesalers, we're not going to see it because it's all Dell and, and Staples and all of those places and even cell phone companies that are going to see the growth in the projector market. I don't think that, in all honesty, our market is really going to grow that much. So a cell phone projector. Well, I've I've seen some prototypes. They're they're kind of cute. I mean they're, you know, little two three hundred ANSI lumens, and they're part of your cell phone with your camera and your, uh, you know, video camera and everything. But um, I I think that kind of size and price point is where the growth is going to be. Which for those of us that install them in boardrooms with the nice chief or rack access mounts or whatever, we're not going to see any of that. And see that's where, that's where I was going. George, is it, is this uh, is this happening? Uh, well, growth. I don't. I, I, I agree with Don that it may be in the Pico projector realm. And yes, I've seen those videos, which are, are very funny, um, with them attached to the cell phone, sort of this sort of piggyback thing going on. Um, it, the the article mentions that you know 3D will be a growth. We all know my feelings on 3D here. Not. <laughs> um, and for those not, I can fill you in in person. You don't want to hear it today. Um, so where this was is really you're going to see the growth, like Don said, is in the education market, maybe in sort of the small commercial market for corporations who will be able to buy these off the shelf, just like the flat panel mountings that we used to make profits on as integrators. This, too, seems to be going to the way of the Internet and box sales. Although I do have an opinion, I know you're surprised, about the Pico projectors. I'm already annoyed enough by people talking on their phones, yammering at loud <laughs> levels at dinner and on, on um, trains and stuff. 
Just imagine what they can annoy you with with a Pico projector. Wow. I don't need to see that. Okay, so, folks? So, so let me give, so, give, give you a scenario here. You're, you're sitting next uh, to, I don't know, an insurance salesman on a cross-country plane ride, and he brings out his Pico projector because he wants to show you his slideshow and sell you something. Or his kid's, you know, third grade picture album. That's the, not so bad, and it's annoying, but I can always say no and walk away. But then there's the guys who, you know, talk loudly and sort of puff themselves up with whatever reference they need to to sound tough and or antagonistic on the train. Do I really need to see their fight videos or worse, something that's not really geez. acceptable in public behavior? I've got a short story for you. When I worked my previous incarnation at this company called Sharp Weisberg, which is now World Stage, we had some new projectors. We, had a bi- we were on the sixth floor of a building. In order to test them and how big they could get, we rolled them up to the window and started broadcasting or at least uh, projecting onto the UPS building across the street from us. <laughs> One of the fine fellows decided it would be interesting to see what flesh tones do with this projector. No. Can anybody oh, guess what man. medium we use to test flesh tones? Yeah, this was late at night in <laughs> a fall day, and one of the principals noticed it as he was walking across the street. It, like those little uh, bugs that uh, disappear when the light goes on, that's what happened when the phone started ringing. <laughs> but it's a warning sign of, do I really need to be annoyed that you know, you're going to show me this movie's cool and I'm not going to get away from you until the video ends? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's, that can uh, happen with, with iPhones and with any other, any other device that plays movies. I mean, just yes, because but now you have a larger audience and a larger projection area. I kind of like this, actually, because it's caused me to come up with a new business model. Um, The first thought I had when you said that, George, was now I'm going to have somebody behind me on the bus that's using the back of my head as a projection screen. (laughs) I'm bolder than you, buddy. Mine's a better projection screen. Let me tell you right now. Yeah, but you you would have what's called a high-gain screen. (laughs) So so now I'm actually thinking I should put out a whole line of clothing of being a projection surface. So this is good. I like this. I do like this idea. Work or you daylight or, or a draper for new shirt shirts. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Or or hoodies or you know we can now call it the drapery or something like that. You know, <laughs> you know they're they're already doing that in in Hollywood. I think it was uh, one of, one of the many way too many award shows. Maybe the MTV Movie Awards and Jim Carrey came out in an all white suit and they projected different images right on it. Or at there least it go. looked like they were projecting. It didn't look like it was a green screen suit. So um, once again, it's already out there, people. Late. Yeah. yeah. Well, Missed here, the boat. <laughs> here's the thing. And this is this is why I think this might be a little wishful thinking on their part. Uh, it's not so much the, the 22% growth over to 2010. I'll, I'll kind of give them that. Where, where my issues with this article comes in and their, their projections is the 2015 mark. And yeah, it's only you know four years, three years away. They're saying something in the neighborhood of 39 million projectors that year. 39 million. Uh, with doing some math and what they're thinking, um, what they're calling the, the basic or the mainstream projectors, which are you know somewhere around 1,000 to up to 5,000 lumens, they're saying that you're going you're gonna to get 12 million out of it in, 12, in 2015. The high end, so we're talking Christie's and Barco's and, and, the, and the big mamma jammas, they're saying you're only going to get about 400,000 out of that. That leaves 27 million projectors in this small Pico line. Does anybody really believe they're going to sell 27 million Pico projectors? How many iPhones year? are out there? Exactly. 
so you you're th- you're saying that that Steve Jobs is going to leave us with a projector next next month when he does his his iPhone five announcement? Sure, why not? <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's definitely one of those add-ons that you can sell quite a bit of, even if you only do ten percent of what iPhone or Android has sold. That's sure. Yeah, but you also got to remember. Numbers. You know, Tim and Tim and I have had many conversations about projections and numbers. You got to remember, this is also just a a form of economics, right? Where if you follow the the definition on despair.inc, yeah, what economics is is the science of explaining tomorrow why the predictions you made yesterday didn't come true today, <laughs> right? So. <laughs> You you do have to. It, it's all a matter of bolstering economy. Everything looks great until you get it done and look at it on paper, and we miss the mark. Well, it does. And, and then if you look at, I mean, it depends on which economist you 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 listen to when it comes to you know the recovery that we're supposed to be having. Um, one guy on the left hand side says it's all great. You know, here here comes the the economy. The guy on the right though says not so fast. You know, hold on to your seats because it ain't over yet. Oh sure, yeah, and you're, we're we're destined to repeat that constantly. Yeah. One one thing I think might be driving their predictions a little bit. If you look at the price point on a lot of the projectors, especially the smaller ones and the portable ones, over the past say five or ten years, they've dropped so significantly at, that the price of the replacement bulbs is equal almost to the price of the projector. Absolutely. So at this point, we're looking, especially with the Picos, at throwaway projectors. You know, you use it until it burns out, then you chuck it and you get a new one. And if that's the mindset and if that's where we've gone commodity-wise and price-wise, then I I can almost see that number being possible. Um, I I still think it's a stretch. I I don't know of anyone that's using projection, but, you know, somebody knows something if they're they're willing to put their name out there like this and make the prediction. That's true. I mean, George has has talked about this before, about the the commoditization of what we sell and, and what we install. Um, the projector has become a TV. It really has because with with projectors you can get you can get a twenty six hundred twenty eight hundred lumens projector for five hundred six hundred bucks. Um, you know that's got a digital input, and so in essence, at that point, it becomes a very large screen LCD, um, as large as <laughs> virtually as large as you want to get. Uh, compare that to you know, let's say it's it's a you want to make it one hundred and ten inches. Well, okay, so. Panasonic last year at Infocom had a 110-inch plasma. It was a little pricey at, at around $150,000, $200,000. So that or $500 bucks for, a, uh, for, a, for a projector. So, All righty, moving on. Don, you wrote a very cool, very uh, interesting blog post on Ray of Blogs. Um, why don't you go through it and tell us it, it's entitled Preach It, Brothers and Sisters Preach It. Um, what I gathered, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, basically we still have an identity problem in the, inf- in the, in the AV industry. And as much as, you know, your mom still thinks you're a, you're a, you sell TVs and, and Richard Fergoza <laughs> a couple of weeks ago says that he's a VCR repairman. Right. So, <laughs> so go ahead and, and kind of explain to us uh, what, what you were thinking and, and the thrust of this, of this post. Well, you know, the basic thought is. In 2009, Infocom celebrated its 70th anniversary, seven decades of an association for the AV industry. The AV industry itself has been around since, well, well you know, when did they invent the, the record player? When did they invent, you know, the, the very first recording media? That's really the birth of our industry. But when you tell people you work in the AV industry, 
you usually kind of get that glazed over eye look of, you know, just total blank and they have no idea what you're talking about. Um, we don't have a degree program for an AV design engineer, AV installer or anything in the United States. Um, it was until master format 2004 before we even got a place of our own for AV specs and construction documents. Yeah. So there's really just a real, real lack of information about our industry Despite the fact that we're everywhere, I mean, imagine waking up tomorrow with no AV, no mics, no speakers, no monitors on your computer because that's a version of a you know, TV screen or a monitor. You know, that's all AV. And we're everywhere. People take it for granted, but they don't realize or recognize that we're a distinct industry. So, you know, the gist of my post is, hey, people, it's obviously not gaining precedence in the people in American people's mind just by being, you know, they take us for granted. So you have to go out there and basically preach about what it is we do. You can't sell a system to a customer before you sell the industry. So no, I'm true. encouraging, yeah, I'm encouraging everyone in AV, you know, if you have a chamber of commerce or a technology council, community organization for networking, offer to speak to them and talk about AV. You know, join Infocom, join NSCA, or even just go to their sites. They have a lot of free info on how to evangelize our industry, you know, um, get on LinkedIn or, a or Twitter and become an AV tweep. We'd love to have you, you know, the more of us that are out there making noise, the sooner people will understand what it is we do. And, um, you know, I'm in my third year of a dual master's program at the University of Maryland right Ooh. now. Um, yeah, <laughs> I finished the technology management part of the degree and I'm on the MBA part, but I'm working with a bunch of IT people because there's no applicable AV degree, IT is as close as I could get with technology management. So, you know, and even in my classes with my professors, I'm constantly telling them what it is we do. So, you know, the, the best place to find a helping hand is at the end of your own arm is the Swedish proverb that I sort of close the article with. And, you know, nobody's out there helping us let our industry be known. We have to help ourselves and just talk about it. Just kind of be obnoxious, have fun, make friends, and let them know what AV is. Well, let me ask you, because when, when I read this, the first thing that, that I thought was, yes, we're everywhere. We're ubiquitous. And I think that's part of our problem. The fact that we have been around for, for so many years, like you said, that the invention of, of, of the radio, of the record player and, and the radio, and any time there's signals, you know, there's you know, audio and video going, going, going over the lines. We have right. been around forever. So we're everywhere, and yet that's part of the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I call us the largest industry in the world that's a hidden industry because people don't know we exist, but we're worth billions of dollars worldwide, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like um, in the music industry when I was a part of that. We were the greatest band you never heard of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think the the bigger the bigger challenge is you're right, Don. There there is no there's no professional degree system out there that's going to give you an AV industry degree. The closest thing we've ever had is broadcast media, uh, but that's that's just one facet. I mean, uh, I'll throw out a number there that George probably will give him a little bit of a creeps. I lived my life in sixteen seven ninety for twenty years, <laughs> right? You, so it, it's you're you're right. We've now made some some advances in the industry uh, with having our own master spec qualification. Uh, we still don't have, let's say, a, 
uh, notified degree program out there that you know tells people what our specialty is and of course because we don't have that or that we don't have that kind of backing when you're dealing with other disciplines let's say you know we're always mm-hmm. the first ones to get cut out of the project too right right well let, let me ask you something because i've talked with a couple of different integrators before and, and these are guys that do the hiring and the firing i'm a big proponent of education i'm not doing a double masters like like don is i'm doing a single one <laughs> a little more sane um but i i've i've pitched that idea to them because i've talked with infocom about doing stuff like that and i i, I you know work with with colleges and stuff and I have pitched the idea to different info to different integrators. The comment that they said to me was, "We think you should do it. it it's a great idea because what in in their mind what I'm what would happen is you would flood the market with all this talent, which would drive down um, salaries. And so that, at least from their perspective, is a double edged sword. Yes, it would it would give us a degree, and yes, it would give us some some cachet that like the IT industry has but are they right would it drive that would it with the flood of of qualified degreed engine you know engineers and designers put a damper in and kind of drive down uh salaries and and the income that not only the new guys are making but also what what the other current uh integrators are making um i don't know you know providing value to a discipline or a uh, pr- providing value to a skill should drive anything down. Um, you know, we could have lots of conversations, and George could definitely back me on the support side of things, which we just won't go into. You well, know, I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Don. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't think it would. If if it did drive down salaries, I think that would be in the long, long term. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now, you know, people are commanding decent salaries in our field, the skilled and trained people. But at the same time, those integrators have to pay for their CTS classes and their CTSD classes. They have to not necessarily pay for them to do manufacturer training. But, you know, if I go to a week to Crestron School or a week to Extron School or any other school for that matter, buy amp on the West Coast, that's a week away from the office, a week of not being productive and airfares and things, you know, the manufacturers are great about providing sometimes accommodations, sometimes travel, depending on the manufacturer, but that's still costing our employers to give us the time to send us there for that mm-hmm. training. So I think if there were a degree program that we could get independently, either undergrad or graduate, that would prov- provide the skilled people in the marketplace without that extra expense to the, to the integrator, and they could be able to pay them the same salary and and like relax because they don't have the extra expense of training. Mm, that's a very good point. Go ahead, George. I would just like it so that there's a degree so that when I ask the question of potential text that they don't tell me an audio XLR is uh, left, right, and ground. <laughs> As yeah, Kevin that's... and I have discussed <laughs> ad nauseum in again basically getting support people into the the phones uh at at my former employer it it was it was really bad i've been in the audio you know 10 years i've been doing specifically audio pro yes pro okay tell me how this works left right and ground right you know technically it could be left right ground for pro audio well no pro when you're when you're a lot when you're a pro (laughs) audio guy i'm just saying you could do it isn't it it's and possible. You know, one of the things <laughs> okay. that we actually, because because Crestron does have, uh, you know, a, a programming curriculum, 
um, we get that all the time. You know, I, I, we don't have enough time to come to class. My, you know, my boss won't let, don't won't send me. Uh, what we've actually seen documented and let's say, well, I don't want to say document. What we have proven is that those days that you spend in the classroom save you time in the job site. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, you, oh instead without question. Of, well, even and, and more I so, actually, Kevin. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, even more so, Kevin. There was a time when there was a huge debate internally at, at Crestron as to whether to teach some of the basics. What tools to carry. What the basics of audio and RF are. And you found, we found that you had to teach that as one of the prerequisites to the class because they came out going, all right, you told me how to do that, but I don't understand what it's working with. Yeah, what's this left, right, and ground thing? Yeah, exactly. We, ha we had some stuff like that. And this is not a dig at the people in the field because sometimes it's a, there you go, you're hired, get out there, do it. And Absolutely. there's something to be said for that as well, the apprentice method and just getting out there and getting, getting your hands dirty. But, yeah, I mean, it would be great to have that at all levels. I mean, Don, I think you're, you're talking even a higher level at times uh, about education. But I'd love to see that CTS or something similar as an educational uh, foundation is, is real. Right. And, and Infocom, is, as an association, is taking steps in that direction. Um, they now have their, you know, totally free, no cost to the company or the individual. The intro to AV class is completely free online. Um, they have a couple of other courses that are free and webinars that are free online for some of the basic stuff. And they also now have a pre-CTS certificate that you can get. I can't remember off the top of my head the exact name for it. But basically it's saying I've gone through this coursework. I can do basic AV stuff even though I'm not a CTS yet. And it's just sort of to get some of these off the street people to a basic level of competence before they go out and represent our industry. And it's needed yeah. desperately. So, desperately. you know, good, good on Infocom <laughs> for moving forward with that stuff because, uh, you know, none of the universities are doing it. We have to get out there and let people know about us so that someday they will. And I keep pushing, you know, I'm on one of the Infocom committees. I keep pushing the board, talk to universities, get your face up in front of them, not just about the AV in their infrastructure, but about putting the AV in their curriculum, you know. So What's interesting, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> from an education standpoint, you know, colleges are – I'm, not, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Colleges are money-making institutions. I mean, regardless of whether it's a state university or it's a private college, they're not in the business to lose money. And so if they have a program, it's because they've done the research and they see a viable use for it. Part of what you're saying, Don, and I agree with you, is we need as maybe an industry or, or as you know, an integrator say, hey, you know, you have hired us to come in. Why don't you pursue doing some sort of, whether it's an associate's or a bachelor's or up, up to the graduate level, some sort of program to train people and educate them to where you create an AV degree. Right. So. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's something that it's going to come eventually, but as people in the industry, we have to go out and spread the word and get people, get the demand there. You know, I've, I've been in the industry for 15 years like most people, I totally fell into the industry by accident. I didn't grow up saying I want to be an AV when I grow up. I didn't even know that was a thing other than the guys with the slide projector at school, you know. Yeah. So it, it's something we have to get out there and talk about. And some of our talking on Twitter and some of our blogging is starting to make headway. This year in Orlando, I actually met three people that were college students at the show 
just because they want a career in AV and wanted to see what there is. That's awesome. I was so excited. I was like jumping up and down excited when I met these kids. So we just need a whole bunch of people doing that, you know? What, what do you want to be when you grow up, Timmy? I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an AV tech, you know, or an AV design engineer. That's where we want to go. So just preach it. Get preach out there and preach it. <laughs> I wanted to be a lumberjack. And I'm okay. Uh, moving on before we get in trouble. All right. Um, Christy offers a 4K upgrade kit for the 2K projector. This is not so much for me. Sorry. It's hard to, it's hard to listen to that with a straight face. I know. All right. This is not so much about the Christy upgrade. You can you – can, this is for me at least. And, and real quickly, um, there's about three or four of these Christy 2K projectors that have been sold. Um, I shouldn't say that. There's more than that. But Christie has has offered a 4K upgrade package. Includes an entire light light engine assembly and a bunch of other stuff that I don't really understand because I'm not a projector guy. Um, (laughs) But my main question is, and Kevin, we'll kick this off with you since you're our resident um, manufacturer guy. Why can't other manufacturers do this? You know, I, I understand firmware upgrades that allow you to do that, but why couldn't, I don't know, a switcher manufacturer say, here, here's a here's a piece that lets you do, it's, a, it's an old analog switcher, here's a piece that you add to it, and now you have digital and analog. Well, that a little is a little more tricky than, than say, what we're doing right now. Uh, Crestron does have a trade-in program where, you know, the, the concept of, of going to digital, uh, or actually it's not even a concept, it's more of a reality. Going to digital does require a overhaul, if you will, of your electronics. Uh, and we're just trying to help out. And what we've done is we've given a bounty, so to speak, you know, bring us all of your analog gear, or, you know, all of your analog infrastructure, analog switching systems. And, you know, we'll, we'll give you a trade in value on it on uh, going to digital. Um, so the, the problem therein lies, though, Tim, is that technology changes. Um, chips change. You know, if you follow Moore's law, about every 18 months, you got a, you know, a doubling of your chip speed. This is no different. Um, we were working with technologies that, on the digital side, just didn't exist uh, when when you were doing analog deployment. Uh, so there's a great opportunity uh, to learn more about what's happening in in different technologies. But at the same time, we also are. I don't want to say we're shoehorned or we're actually backed into a corner of there is just certain technology that don't, you know, carry through. Uh, like I would still love to play my Intellivision, but sadly I <laughs> now can't. Right. Um, hey, those were good games, man. That's, that's what it was all at. And, and the and, uh, vision and the, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember my son looking at this going, really, you guys used to play that. And I said, that was the best there was, man. Not this PS3 stuff that you guys are all just, kind of looking at it and going, eh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, as technology changes, we always have to adapt to it, or at least we are adapting to it. Okay, so is uh, it because it's more of... chipset-based now? I mean, years ago, there were, you, know, you had analog components. You could switch, switch, switch and swap things out. Is it because everything is moving towards more you know, chips and, and circuit boards, and you can't exactly pop open you know, a component and, and switch out the chips? I guess the best way to describe that is with every device that makes our lives easier comes a multitude of complexity on the device itself. So with everything that we're doing that's trying to make life easier, 
the electronics get more complex. Like when you compare the analog to the digital side, yeah, think about when you put in a digital uh, analog system, let's say, and you get video on the other end, and it might have been a little bit of grassy or a little bit grainy. You're like, yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah, in the digital yeah. realm, you don't get that option. Either it works or it doesn't. You know, so it, because of that, there is a lot more complexity on the electronics level that does require uh, that we cannot just literally just say, oh, you'll take out that analog board and put in a digital one. It doesn't. It, it doesn't translate that way. Okay, so I'm just you know, I'm just wishing for something that's not possible. Then. Well, no, because when you start looking at what Christie's doing here, they're replacing the light engine. <laughs> okay, yeah, and they're also replacing the the image chips, the DMDs. That's the core. That's like saying, I'll replace your tube TV for a flat screen. Just make sure that you give me the tube, all the electronics, and the housing. But they're doing it, though. I mean, the, 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 the chassis is the same. The, the box is the same. Yes, that's because it's modular-based, Okay. right? In comparison, let's say digital media or switcher is the same way. It's a card-based system. So if you have today, you're using an analog input card, great. And tomorrow, when you don't have that analog device, if you want to put in a digital input card, great. Take out that card, put in the new card, you're all set. And see, that's what... Okay, so you, you guys and, and other manufacturers will have chassis-based systems where you switch, you can switch and swap things. So that's uh, kind of what they've done. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. In, okay. in the in the realms of digital media, yeah, that is exactly what we have done. The, okay. the card structure is now swappable, if you will. Not hot-swappable, no, but no, swappable. No, no. I, can, I can change my... <laughs> I can change my topology. You can yes. power it the system down, take the card out, and replace it with something else. Something more betterer. Yeah, more betterer. Uh, honestly, the thing that scares me the most about this story and about this discussion is not so much the fact that it's available, because I think it's great that it's available, but coming from the integration world, I have to say, unless you guarantee with every one of these sales... It's going to go to an integrator who will then go and do the swapping or replacing. We're going to be looking at a nightmare because I have customers that couldn't replace a power cord, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, on, on, on a unit without going into complete meltdown or messing up the system. If you have them start changing cards and, and you know, light engine assemblies and things on their own. And as soon as you say upgrade kit to an end user, they think DIY. Well, see, that's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Which, for those of us that are in the industry and have some training, we could probably DIY something like that. But I shudder to think some of my customers getting hold of some of these bits and then trying to shove them in and make them work. And, you know, I, I hate to say it because not all end users are stupid. But, but there is some are. truth to, <laughs> yeah, there is some truth to the stereotypes. So that it's just a little scary. We don't really say stupid. We just say intellectually challenged. <laughs> That's because you're the manufacturer. We say stupid. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. Uh, George threw this one out, and it kind of couples into another one. Um, it was a study done that says 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds prefer their smartphones, tablets, and computers to control TV viewing. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, I, and, and this is not surprising. I mean, it's, it is the, the generation that, that's after all four of us that you know they just, are just just <laughs> yeah it's just it's just the one generation we don't have several between us and them uh but it, it's what they've grown up with you know they've grown up with with twitter and with facebook and with and honestly with um with 
texting. I mean, the, these are the kids that say that, that email is too slow. And so they, that's why they send 15,000 texts a month. Uh, George, is this something surprising to you that they want to use their smartphones, let's say, for everything? At least 41% it, of them? It's not surprising to me in, in the slightest um, because those those units are there and they can do everything. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised about it with the younger set wanting to do that or somebody who's single or it's just, you know, a couple. I think once you get to become a family, and I think we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, in which I, I, I sort of postulated that the dedicated remote in the house would sort of be the new status symbol of family because now you need one because you're not going to leave your personal cell phone with your kids or somebody else in the house just to turn on the TV or to do the channel changing, right? Um in that case, you would be getting them like an iTouch, and then it's just a dedicated remote anyway. Um, what I'm more impressed about, though, with, with this um, article was about how the contextual menus were the biggest driving force for these people wanting this. They didn't want to read, say, a la the um, TiVo menus or your standard cable TV menus, but they wanted that very iTunes sort of swipe and see the picture uh, to choose what they wanted to watch, which I kind of like. I both like and have a fear of. Um, I've made the sort of very urbane reference about the Fahrenheit 451 where there's a scene where they uh, do a job review with the fireman, and his interview is the guy looking at a picture of his front and a picture of his back. What do you really know about that? What do you really know about the movie that you're going to choose? You're just going to start going off of stuff that you already know, or they went, ooh, pretty color, I like. <laughs> Maybe I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but there is that going on. There is that sort of I'm closing myself off to only what I know and find it for me, attract me. There it is. Or what what grabs your attention? I mean, then then it goes back to the graphical designer of whatever the content is that you're looking at. Right, right. Now, to be clear, dedicated remotes are not going away for a long time. I think, but for certain economic levels and certain sort of uh, groups of people i.e. these people not so much younger than us, <laughs> um, they are going to gravitate toward that first, and I think the sale is going to be harder for them, and the, the, the way you have to convince them about durability and not having to worry about changing it is a whole different sales technique, and uh, that will be some work to do. Well, see, and this, this kind of couples into another story we, we're, we were looking at this week, and that's um, the Yale locks from, from CE Pro is a story that they did. Um, at at Cedia this year, Yale had a lock where you swipe yourself your your smartphone. It's it works off off NFC, um, very similar to what Google Wallet does and, and a couple other things. Where you know it, it's it's a two, it's a two way communication if I'm not mistaken, and you you swipe it and it unlo- it unlocks the door. So not only is your cell phone now your keys, it can also start your car. So it's your car keys. And now it can control everything. Why? Why is that? You know, so horribly wrong. And I don't necessarily, you know, um, and I think I, I even talked to George about this. I also see this from an education standpoint, where you can give a, let's say, a, an iPod Touch or an iPad, and to a professor, and he walks in the room and he swipes it on the NFC receiver, and everything that happens that 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 professor wants for that room just happens. That way, you don't have to teach someone that has three doctorates how to start the projector. Gosh, this sounds very familiar. 
such as this this sounds like well uh pardon me for being the restaurant employee for a moment right because i was in sales why not buy that restaurant piece and that restaurant piece and that restaurant piece and put all these restaurant pieces together because we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket <laughs> okay so you're um, saying that the, the smartphone is all in one basket Sure. What is on that smartphone? Your contacts, your email, your everything. Your life is on that smartphone. Mm-hmm. It says what's well, a double standard. It always says, you know, we don't, we don't want to do that, but we're going to do it anyways. Um, in the younger generation, yeah, I can totally see it because to me, this is just a repetition of, I'll just say back in the day, uh, we were doing media distribution uh, when, oh, I don't know, maybe DVDs might have been brand new. Um, there was the concept of a student could not go into the classroom and view, um, it was, a let's say, a call of equity. You could not go into the, the classroom to be educated using a form of media that is less than what you experience in your home. Yes. Um, and that has, was, has been the case for many years. The problem, though, is now with the you know, the readily available types of media on Blu-ray or even with higher definition content, uh, we walk into a classroom and someone plugs in an iPod or, you know, a, a device that outputs, you know, 240 resolution from YouTube or something, and we go, wow, that's great. Really? <laughs> I, I don't see it, but okay. No, no, what's, uh, what's, better, what's better is that is you usually take a five or $10,000 projector that will do 1080i. Yes, and you hook up an HDMI connection to it, and then you play YouTube videos. Absolutely, we have fallen into the um, the the cataclysm of quantity over quality. It's because I can go to YouTube and get forty million videos that you know four are worth watching. That uh, as opposed to, I can see something at a at a very good quality. So we well, you know yeah, I, it's, I have some. I, I disagree to a small degree with you here, Kevin. It's not so much quantity as it is choice. If everything I wanted was offered at a high-res level, I would gravitate towards that. It's just sort of like the XM radio debate of years ago where they would say it's not really CD quality even though they say it because when they want to add more stations and more different genres of music, they have to sort of do something with the bandwidth. And that's why I gravitate towards streaming rather than high-resolution TVs or high-resolution DVDs or Blu-ray or anything is because what I want to watch, I want the choice of watching that, just like I want to listen to a specific type of music at that point rather than having to go through my libraries or even go through and find a radio station that might possibly be playing it. Oh, there is no, some that just want to do that, but that's my – you know, if, if YouTube now lets you do it in HD and as HD cameras become more – Sorry for the word ubiquitous. We, we, we will see more and more of that, and the quality will rise. Sort of like with the the iPod. We now all know that everyone listens to an iPod, or some kind of MP3 player. We resisted it for years, right? Because we, ah, the clientele that buys automation systems or buys a high resolution TV are not going to want to listen to that low quality. Wrong. They wanted the convenience of carrying around what was theirs and being able to choose it at any moment. Once we get everybody in the content creation side on board for higher quality, and that means cost and being able to sort of give them that ROI on it, I think it will generally lift all the boats, to use the political term, but lift all the boats up to, to give us that better quality. Oh, absolutely agreed, because right now, the I guess, <laughs> not to point to find a point on it, uh, we're, in, we're in a bigger challenge of infrastructure capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a matter of, uh, and I agree with you, George, it's not a matter of 
um, that we are settling for quality or quantity over quality. It's the fact that that quality really isn't available, right? Uh, we'll think that, yes, Ethernet or, you know, gigabit Ethernet is, is the answer. No, it's not. Uh, there's an infrastructure challenge that we're facing as well uh, to be able to accommodate or obtain that quality. And I agree. Once you have or once we have a medium that gives us that high quality and the the choice of getting that content or the content availability, it will be like flipping on a switch. So right. let me see if I can understand what, what, what we're talking about here. Is it is it basically the best quality for what I want that we can get now? Yeah, basically. I mean, when you think about uh, e- even your streaming content servers, uh, let's say Netflix or whoever, you're not you're not going to really see 1080p out of those guys anytime soon because hmm. you're still you're still suffering the input that you have to your let's say your your domicile or to whatever your network is. Uh, people complain about let's say iTunes and how you have to buffer or well that's because you're actually downloading the content or the content is being buffered so that you can enjoy it at a higher quality. But I, right, but right now that really doesn't matter. People aren't really saying, "Well, I'm not watching this Netflix in 1080p." I, but I love it because I can go on there and I can get it right now. So I agree with George. It's all, it's a, definitely a matter of choice. But that choice has has let's say as a sidebar has gotten us into a larger quantity version versus a higher quality version. That's currently well, sorry. And and that's something that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. We were talking on on the sh- on the podcast here about super high end audio equipment that was available, and and at the time, you know, I mentioned we're kind of in a schizophrenic place with technology right now, because we have on the one hand super high resolution video and super high fidelity audio and just all these amazing expensive things that are perfect that appeal to to a large number of people. But on the other hand, we're watching the crappy YouTube and the and the streaming, whatever happens to be on Pandora or you know Spotify, whatever you use, and and we're restricted by by the pipes that are available, you know. But we're accepting of that because we want the great variety, and there's only so many things on Blu-ray that I could you know I could stream something that you know isn't yet on Blu-ray through some of these services, I'm going to go for that, you know, if that's what I want to watch right then or if that's what I want to listen to right then. So, you know, no, I think it's, it's definitely... Dovet- go ahead. Go ahead. I think this dovetails into a, another story that's here, if I will, Tim. Yeah. The Web TV one. Oh, yes. Uh, about the rise of uh, Web TV. Because, well, why the reason this dovetails into this is that we're also not just do I get to see what I want to watch when I want to watch it and I'm willing to sacrifice some level of quality but it's also because I'm watching it on multiple platforms, right? I go from watching it on my, my, my little smartphone to maybe my tablet to my PC to maybe a big high-resolution TV. And I'm willing to have that transition because I'm watching it on so many different formats that that quality for what I'm watching doesn't always matter so much as the content that I'm watching. I mean, I know that my kids expect to see the same content that they see on cable on the computer, and they're kind of miffed. When they can't find it, yeah. Now they find it in certain sort. You know, it's almost uh, you know not pay per view, but you know, just to get it on, say, the Nickelodeon channel and be able to pull up videos. 
Um, but my, my six-year-old is a huge YouTube fan. Why? Because of Lego Star Wars, and he can find every Lego Star Wars movie he's ever wanted to find. You know, homebrew ones, the professional stop animation ones, the cartoons. He finds what he wants when he wants it. And they're used to this. Well, there's also, I think, a kickback onto the, as Dawn, you said in a previous uh, conversation about how the high-end audio, there's also sort of a revival of, of vinyl in many, in many um, aspects. That lower res quality is also a kickback into that, I don't need to hear that much of it. I don't need to really worry about it. The only thing that is good to me is its portability. Um, something that's, that somebody's out there who's been talking about HD for so long. It's a guy named Phil Swan. Is anybody familiar with this guy? Mm-hmm. He does something called yeah. TVPredictions.com. He used to write for Broadcast Magazine. Okay. He's got a, a little Twitter thing called Swanee Says or Swanee HD. Anyway, one of his things is he's always hated these little portable devices in HD saying, nobody's going to want to watch stuff on that. And I have declared it the inverse square law of Swanee. The more often he speaks about people not wanting a small portable HD screen, it multiplies tenfold people buying them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and his big thing is he also dovetails that into his who looks good and who looks bad on HD. You know, he's sort of had this running gun battle of the Logan's Run effect for starlets on HD. Oh, you know, yeah. People are like very afraid of it. Um, so, again, there's that content and people sort of avoiding having to worry about what that quality requires to implement and or view. But here's the thing, though. You, you, you talked about your kids doing it on, on YouTube and stuff like that. We have, uh, this week, Amazon re- re- released their their tablet, their, their, the one that they're going up against the, the iPad with. And the iPad is, is, is obviously the, the industry leader when it comes to tablets. You're talking about screens that are less than 10 inches, regardless of which. I, I don't think that there's a tablet out there that, that's over 10 um, so you've got whether it's YouTube or whether it's Star Wars or, or what have you. This these are the screens that people that people are watching on. I mean, the story that George is talking about is the number of devices that are are browsing the internet and and they're, they're being used to stream the the content onto not just TVs but other places. This if, if we start thinking about where people are watching this stuff, they're not watching them on sixty five inch plasmas. <laughs> they're just not and so the the quality can be a little less than what a video file or audio file would would consider ideal um because the end user says this is what i want like back to what you guys all you guys are saying this is what i want and i want this now and i want to watch it <laughs> i want an oompa loompa daddy Aye. yeah we're, we're all becoming veruca salt that was exactly what i was thinking <laughs> yeah you know what's funny though tim you, you said you're not going to watch this on a 65 inch tv but uh, you know at least in my environment i don't pop the corn gather every, everybody up around the iphone to watch a movie you know it's 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 a matter of convenience again. It's well, <laughs> okay. I'm out and I can search and I can get it. Boom! It's perfect for that medium. Do I want a 65 inch TV that connects to directly to YouTube so I can watch that pixelated mess? No. <laughs> I mean, I just it's just something. It's my choice. I don't do that. All right, right? I'm going to say something, and I and I mean this with all due respect. You're, you're <laughs> oh, here old. we go. <laughs> That's why you don't want to do it. Um, and no, I'm old. No, no, no. That's that's not exactly true. I mean, because I use I use my iPad when I'm on the plane or doing something to watch, uh, you know, catch up on uh, Walking Dead or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. It's perfect medium for that. But still, when I go home, 
<laughs> I don't take my, I don't gather around. You know, I get the kids and the and the dog and everybody gathers around the iPad, right? As a, as a family medium, it's being, it's being touted as the place where everything goes to, and that's where you you gather around. But the reality of it is, like you know, you don't take your wife and your kids and and say, "Hey, let's prop up the iPhone and watch a movie." No, but my kids take no. my cell phone and sit on the couch and chew and watch, on it because and chew on it. Yes, no, and and they watch they watch Netflix. They stream Netflix on my cell phone because that's the medium that they can control and 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 they want to. Uh, you you go to a college campus and they have you know several commons areas with with you know TVs all over the place. And what you'll find most of the time is either a laptop out, an iPad out, or some sort of cell phone device that's streaming content to those portable personal devices, uh, whether that's a live sporting event or a, a movie that they downloaded. And, and, and again, I, I think it's because we are of a generation. The guys behind us, this is what they're doing. Yes, they still have are going to have TVs for to watch movies with their parents, but when they want to watch it and, and they want to show people uh, what they're watching, they are bringing out the, the personal devices, whether that's an iPad or a tablet of some sort or their laptop. I mean, that, and, and that, well, doesn't the, um, didn't the iPad just come out with the, the last, uh, the last event that they announced more iPad stuff. There's a, like a video mirroring that it's designed to attach to a larger monitor, i.e. your TV. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the the process has started. We still get the content we want where we want it, and we can connect it to something larger, i.e. gather the family around, pop the corn. But the device of choice for accessing that is that little thing you carry around all day. Yeah. Sure. Um, and it's it does a, do matter. HD. I'm just looking it up now. It's got a 30-pin HDMI. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there it goes back to so, the matter of convenience and quantity over quality. Well, and sometimes the thing that you're looking for just isn't available on oh, okay. you know exactly. satellite oh, or yeah, yeah. C- case in point case in point in August and, and I wrote about this for Rave Publications you know my husband and I play in a bagpipe band and the World Bagpipe Championships are held in Glasgow Scotland every August for the past 3 years the BBC UK has or BBC Scotland has live streamed the world's qualifiers and finals in the highest grade on the internet for those of us that can't afford to make the trip to Glasgow every year. And, you know, we hook up our laptop or iPad to, to the 60-inch plasma and have a world's party. People come over to our house at 3 in the morning because that's, you know, uh, 8 in the morning UK time and when, when the competition starts. And we just stay up and, and listen to pipes all day. Y- you can't get that on, you know, DirecTV or, or even Netflix for that matter. But you can't get that on Comcast. Yeah. You know, those sorts of things, live events. And, and some of those, I mean, BBC was streaming it at, at, a, at a very good quality. You know, it's, it's not all YouTube pixelation. There is um, higher quality stuff available out there. You just got to find it. And if it's something you're passionate about, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm on the borderline of this age group, guys. So Three, 3.20 <laughs> in the morning? I want to party with you, Don. That's awesome. Hey, yeah, absolutely. Infocom, no we'll less see. Than 3.20 in the morning. Hey, you know, we're drummers. We're not actually bagpipers, but, but yeah, I mean, the, these things, you know, we hook it up to the TV and we go and, and party. Very cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid to admit that I've actually walked in at 3:20 just to take the shower to go on back out. So I'll just stop there. <laughs> yeah, don't want to get you in trouble. Um, from CE Pro, the four most overrated specs in the industry. Dun, dun, dun. 
Uh, Kevin, we'll start with you. What what um, what is your number one most overrated spec <laughs> in the industry? Oh gosh. Um, well, th- those four are really good. Uh, I, I it would have been really cool though. Uh, pardon my slander on them that if they would have read the article themselves or proofread it uh, because they did actually comment about how a pair of speakers that outputs 50 watts per channel versus a pair that outputs 200 um, never known a speaker to actually output power anyways um, the (laughs) industry does have a lot of challenges with specifications Um, in fact when I teach my classes I always not poke at specifications because they're very important uh, but I always make a, a very good part of, of saying, you know, specs usually try to follow a standard. And the best thing about a standard is, Tim, you can finish this. There's so many of them. There's so many to choose from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think contrast ratio in the video side, yeah, it, it's becoming a very non-quantifiable number uh, because there isn't a baseline. Um, lines of resolution, I still do have people that... You know, okay, lines of resolution. Uh, a line of resolution is still a line of resolution, no matter how many people will think that 1080i is the same as 540p. Just not so. <laughs> Anyways, but, you know, there is lots and lots of specifications out there. Um, resolution is probably the biggest one that I, I have a challenge with. In other words, this 1080p part and reference of 1080p as 1920 as 1080 there's there's actually even more of a disparity between when you see resolution versus whether or not it's analog or digital. Um, when you look at specifications provided by manufacturers, you guys got to remember it's propaganda and it's marketing, right? <laughs> so it, it's the ability to get you interested in my shiny box, so to speak. Um, but, you know, from a manufacturer's standpoint, it, you kind of have to follow what everybody else is doing, too. Um, I, I guess in my that I see personally, the one that bothers me the most is uh, cable specifications. When you're seeing all of these cable specifications that talk about, um, you know, cables are capable of handling all the data required for 120, 240, 400 megahertz refresh displays, you, you don't really understand what you just said there because... The source is only ever going to give you 60 hertz of refresh at the most. And uh, then you're going to have the TV or your monitor display that's going to reclock that to your 120, 240, or 400. So that cable really hasn't done anything for you except, uh, as I like to say, um, made it possible to limit the amount of paper in your wallet. <laughs> so yes. uh, it, it it's uh, it was it's been around for a while. There's been a couple of other articles where people have talked about it. In fact, even one of the cable manufacturers kind of said the same thing that I was saying that hey, you know, it, it's a tough market. You, you have to compete, and if someone as a consumer is going to look at this and say, well, this one you know is supposed to be faster, so I should be able to watch my TV faster. <laughs> no, that's not exactly what that means, but. It is, what it is it is like the Evelyn speed reading version of TV viewing? Yeah, well, it's kind of like when I when we talk about the difference between the U.S. and and Europe, right? The U.S. uses NTSC and uh, Europe uses PAL. Where mm-hmm. when you're talking about oscillation, we didn't have you know crystals back in the day, and we basically had a timing signature of the AC sine wave, right? The 60 cycles. 
well, film is shot in 24 frames. That's why I tell everybody, go to Europe, because they, they actually cycle in 50 hertz, which means you just have two extra, two extra frames. Here, that's why their shows actually end a little earlier, if anybody wanted to know. Their shows just finish a little bit sooner than over here. Here, we had to do what's called 3-2 pull-down, right? So, <laughs> pardon the tangent or getting off the topic. <laughs> but specs can definitely influence... Uh, the not only the end user, but the people who are trying to do the specifying, and people who are trying to do the you know do right by the end user, uh, and it it can be very challenging. Like I said, the four that are up here, gosh, I see those every day, and it, it it's hard to kind of explain to somebody everything that you've learned about what you're talking about isn't exactly correct. <laughs> yeah. So right. yeah. It is hard to tell someone, oh, that doesn't want to believe that digital is taking over and people don't really adopt the digital criteria, Tim, uh, mm. can actually, yeah, thank you, <laughs> can actually then come to grips with the fact that, you know, it is true, it is happening, or it is what you need to pay attention to. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, George? Specs lie like a rug. Always have, always <laughs> will. Absolutely. <laughs> George loves specs. I you love specs. You know, George and I have actually had a couple conversations about this before. There was a specification that was actually posted on our uh, the Crestron website for a MPS 100, uh, and it goes back to CSI 16790 format, where it took me seven pages to actually describe one product. Uh, and so it was kind of like, why did it take you so long? I said, because I think people in general have forgotten the role of the specifier. The specifier is there not as a protection agency against the big bad integrator to the end user, but more of the voice of reason and clarity to the integrator to the, for the end user. As a specifier, you need to be able to... Uh, accurately depict not only the products and the requirements and the operation to the integrator so that a installation can be had with minimal challenges. When we do things like provide product A, and that product A is very, using the term ubiquitous or not even uh, descriptive in its nature, that's when there's a lot of disparity and a lot of finger pointing and, and heated discussions and a lot of alcohol and all that other good stuff. <laughs> So I think we've kind of lost our way a little bit, and specs can be a good thing. Uh, and I agree with George. Specs lie. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, let's say, lack of doing your homework or lack of taking interest in your craft or in your industry. Well, and I do want to clarify. They don't necessarily always lie, but when you're not given the frame of reference for the weighting or for the standard that was used, just yes. a number put out there to sound or look right, eh, okay, they lie because you're not really getting the same information. Yeah, yeah right. remember the whole debacle these... about A and C weighted audio? Right. These go to 11. Right. <laughs> 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 oh, Don, do you have a favorite, uh, favorite spec? Uh, you know, if we're, four, or? If, if we're just going off the list, you know, contrast ratio and 1080p both jump out at me as, yeah, most people can't tell the difference. And what does that even mean? You know, for, especially for contrast ratio, but one, one that gets me, and, and the sad part is, it's actually kind of an ANSI measurement, is lumens. You know, you have your ANSI lumens for projectors, but last year or the year before at Infocom, you know, Digital Projection had this shiny new LED projector yeah. that if you went right from an ANSI lumen measure, it was dim. But when you saw it side by side with one of their major, you know, huge, beefy ANSI lumen projectors, the image looked the same. 
you know, so the different technology kind of made that measurement sort of moot. Um, it, it definitely you know, does. So, you know, either they need to come up with a new specification. Or <laughs> that, that includes that. Yeah. Yes. I'm, you know, because I tried to sell that same projector because it was a sexy projector. <laughs> I tried to sell it to one of my end users and they're like, well, what do you mean? It's only like 500 or 800 ANSI lumens. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want that. I need 10,000 ANSI lumens. Yeah. And I was like, no, you need to see it to get that it looks, you know, the same. So I, I guess but it's not a case so much as the... Baby. Yeah. <laughs> How much more it's black? It's not so the blacks, baby. They're so black. It's <laughs> not so black. much that the spec lied, but that the, the technology changed around the spec, and so yeah. now well, the spec is meaningless. And you're you're absolutely right, Don. I think one of the problems are is people don't realize that. Uh, and I actually come from a lighting background. There's there's more than just lumens, uh, as far as measurements and how it'll affect the image quality. You have things like color rendering in, index and, and color temperature, and it, it always, always vary. And when we focus on one specific portion, in this case, ANSI lumens or ANSI lumens, we haven't even adapted the users or the people who are even in the industry to the understanding of, well, what effects are there other than just ANSI lumens? Uh, and right. like I said, you start taking LED versus high-intensity discharge lamp sources, they have a completely different color rendering issue, uh, and sorry, color rendering index, and they drastic, and that drastically affects what the image quality and how the image brightness can actually appear. Uh, it's, it's word games, right? It's like, why do we use the term, oh, he's very bright? We use a term <laughs> of luminosity to describe somebody's tel intelligence? Yeah, it's... But but I agree. Uh, lumen problem has always been an issue. I mean, we're all taught that you want to, your your you take a reading of your ambient lighting uh, in lumens, and you want your projected image to be thirty percent above your ambient. Then you have to take your screen size, and you have to calculate your lumens per squ uh, square foot. And then uh, you know, so there's all of this math that we always had to do. When now all of a sudden that's being slammed the trunk if you will is being slammed on us by saying well yes this led source which is much more efficient and doesn't have as much waste uh is at 500 lumens just as clear and has a just as captivating image as this 5000 lumen hid lamp sourced projector right, right. Yeah. so maybe maybe the like i agree with tim maybe there needs to be a redefinition or a, a clarification in the industry of why that is important, what it actually means, and how other environmental, let's say, um, effects can charge on it. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to what your eye sees and what your eye perceives. I mean, it's not, I mean, whether, you, whether it's lumens or whatever, and it obviously is not, should not be lumens because, you know, it's a, it's a measurement of light. It, it should be what your brain processes that image to be in a brightness level. And I'm not right. smart enough to say what that is. So... <laughs> Uh, real, real quick, guys, one one final one. Uh, CE Pro this year is they're, they're coming out with their first annual CE Pro Person of the Year. They're accepting nominations. Uh, basically, they're looking for the most disruptive influence on the cons on the uh, custom electronics industry this year. Uh, we'll go around the horn real quick, and uh, Don, we'll start with you. Who do you think is the most disruptive uh, person? Or uh, organization, the most disruptive influence on on CE this year. You know, not coming from a resi market and and mainly playing in the in the uh, 
corporate world, I don't know all the names and faces, but I got to say just in, in technology in general, the most disruptive force has been the power of the online communities, the, the, the social networks, the AV tweets, um, you know, I, the fact that I read CE Pro, which I never read before, um, and, and tweet regularly with Julie Jacobson, their, their editor, you know. Um, the fact that we have that contact available, I think the fact that we're building this entire network online and using social networking of individuals and getting the technology news before it even hits print, I think that's the most disruptive force. It, you know, it's not a person, but, no, but you it's, could it's, say, it, you know. It's, a, it's, a, it's an organization and an organism, the whole social media thing. George, right. who's, your, who's your number one disruptive person? It's sort of a compilation of like the DVD-CA people and the streaming uh, providers. Uh, this has disrupted a lot of what our integrators were putting in from the media storage devices to the infrastructure. Uh, I think those guys stopping, like the DVD-CA, stopping people or trying to stop the uh, storage of DVD content on hard drives has been really disruptive to progressing through and getting rid of those devices. Hmm. Mr. Iselli, what is your uh, what is your pick? I would say that I've been the most disruptive, I um, agree with that. at least to this call, anyways. <laughs> it's it, it's very hard to to come up with a singular answer uh, because uh, I think Don kind of nailed it. Uh, it. We as a social media, there is no throttle. There is no. Um, there's no off there switch. Is no, there's no editor. Yeah. Right? There's no throttle. There's no off switch. Perfect example again. Thank you, Tim. But because information can get to us so quickly, we will latch onto that information and regurgitate it as truth, uh, even if there isn't the slight bit of truth involved in that. Um, so I, I definitely would fall on the same side as Dawn. I think I think the and that's, there's anything wrong with the social networks. That's not what I'm saying here. I just using it as a tool for education or as a tool for information. I'm not from Missouri, but I like to play from it. It's like prove it to me. I want to see it for myself, and I want to read the actual uh, you know information myself before I let somebody just say, oh yeah, well you know it, it's supposed to be uh, how black can this get? And the answer is none. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would say that that definitely is probably my my vote as well. Um, if I were to say in an organization, I would say anybody that anybody that thinks that uh, the removal of a content protection is a authorized and valid thing to do, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Right. <laughs> yes, and my mine along the lines of of content production, mine would be the the organizations that put the content production on there in the first place. Um, I think they've been the most disruptive because they have fundamentally changed how integrators and how the industry uh, is doing and, and how they're handling content. Um, five, ten years ago, you threw in a switcher, you threw in a, a, a DA, and you sent the signal wherever the heck you pleased. And now, because of content protection, um, you have to rethink your your content flow. Um, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's different. And I think that they've been probably one of the most disruptive uh, to the industry because they they have fundamentally changed how we handle how we handle the content. So, alrighty, that's a that's a very good point because uh, if you think about it, this is just a larger version of Napster. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Um, that's all I've got. Anybody else have anything? I just want to say that I have nothing else to say. <laughs> thank you. I, I, I'd like to thank you for using one of my rave blogs uh, as one of the source materials this week. I'm very, I'm, all, I, I'm still stunned that people read both my blog and the blogs and articles that I write for rave. So, you know, I, I get excited when people even tell me they read it, but to actually discuss it in a forum is, is thrilling to me. So thank you. No, absolutely. I, I, I liked it. And, and hey, Bob, I'm, I'm with you. I, I get thrilled when I see one person downloaded this sucker. So <laughs> <laughs> yes, Guilty. George. Oh, wait. I was going to say, Don. you also know that uh, there's been a lot of comments on your uh, blog. Yeah, I, I saw that. I haven't had a chance to respond yet, what with the grad school and such. But uh, I, I'm just thrilled that everyone, especially this most recent blog, that everybody liked it so much. So, yay. Thank you. Now, let, let me say this real quick and <laughs> let you guys go. I feel guilty now because Don's doing a double master's program and can still write a blog. And I haven't cranked one out since I, uh, since I started grad school. So I, I have to get off my slacker butt. That, um, just, that just means that you're an underachiever. Is that that's what that means? No, it just means I find more creative ways to slack. That's all. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that's what you see. You're not taking notes in class. You're actually writing another blog post. So Darn tootin'. All right. Um, that's Don Mead. She's a blogger consultant and double grad student. Uh, crazy woman. Uh, she's with the, the Rave, blog squad, Rave Blog Squad. You can find her on Twitter at, uh, at um, AV Dawn, and uh, it's also her, uh, her, her website. Uh, George Tucker, he's the engineering, engineering coordinator for World Stage. He's also a part of Gary Kay's uh, blog squad. He also has his own, um, oh, good Lord, Tucker's Twos. What is Tuesday, your website? Just, it's Tucker's Tuesdays, tertiary trollings, and technical tidbits. No, Although I've changed the name several times. Oh, uh, the address. TypePad. It's Tucker Tuesday, uh, TuckerTuesday.TypePad.com. That's what it's doing. And also at uh, Tucker Twos on Twitter. And also Kevin Iselli, he's the sen- senior curriculum developer for Crestron. That just means he knows a lot about their DM stuff, and he's really cool. So uh, oh, thank you. Go on. <laughs> uh, thank you guys very much. Uh, I appreciate it. That's all the, t- all the time we have for AV Week. <laughs>